Now, we're going to jump into the book of 1 John is what we're going to be dealing with. And only really four chapters today, uh, four, sorry, four verses today. We're not going to go crazy through the whole thing. I want to spend a little time. But the first thing we've got to recognize is simply this. And this is one of the reasons why I love this book. It is a pastor speaking or writing to his congregation, right? John knew them. John cared for them. And he used this language of endearment. Um, he says, my brothers and sisters, my little children, if it were today and his name were Sam Lenore, he'd say my monkeys because Sam calls people monkeys for some reason. I don't know why, but he's writing this letter to his congregation. And you have to understand that, that John is relatively protracted in years, right? He's a little bit older at this point. If he's the one who wrote it, we'll get to authorship a little bit later, but He's relatively old. This is written towards the end of the first century, in the last decade or so of the first century. And he's writing to this congregation that he loves, but it is a congregation in crisis because they were having issues. Because the truth is they were not discerning about who they should be listening to. Bad theology makes bad Christians. Bad Christians make bad human beings. And so there was a crisis going on in this congregation. And the crisis was Christological. Right? And all heresy is pretty much Christological. What I mean by that is it's our misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Right? And we could also say it's a misunderstanding of what Jesus wants. For instance, um, one thing I particularly find vile is uh, the, this idea of the prosperity gospel, that God loves you and he wants to bless you and he wants to give you money because clearly that's what happened to all of the disciples, right? No, of course it's not. But it really is a misunderstanding of who God is and what God wants for you. So it's important that we understand that all heresy is at its nature, in some respects, Christological. Um, and this crisis creates a very different trajectory for a uh, congregation. And it's really important, as you know, for John to say, hey, this is important that you don't think this way. In these letters, John has to speak, the pastor has to speak prophetically, pastorally, theologically, and as a friend, all those he has to inhabit all those different roles, positions, and ideas for the congregation. And this is true of the role of spiritual leaders all over the place. It's really varied, right, given the situation and time. Pastors must be flexible to continue leading a congregation where God would have them go. He's got to be in constant contact with God, he or she, and he or she has to be in constant contact with God the congregation knowing how to speak to them in love, sometimes correction, sometimes rebuke, sometimes joy and excitement, engagement, all those things is really important. So one of the things we want to do through this series is we want to listen for the clues of love that are embedded within the text, the things John says to the people that he loves, right? Because this pastor, again, loved his congregation, wanted what was best for them, and knew that the best for the church was a better understanding of who God was, particularly in the form of Jesus, who Jesus was. The truth is, this is why theology matters at all, right? It's not about being right. It's not about being correct as much as it is about to understand what love is and to understand who God is and the character that God has. This is the process truly of discipleship, right? To be a learner about who God is is. But we do know this. We know that beginnings are important. So when we're going to take a look at a text, when we got to take a look at the beginning and see what's happening. Because when something begins, there is excitement around that beginning, this new thing. After a few years, the shine of it has a tendency to wear off. I mean, think about your new car. You wash it, you get it detailed, 
But soon you allow that Thai food you brought home last night to stay in the trunk overnight and it's no longer that new car smell. So we're going to see the beginning of something here, but we need to understand the context of what's about to happen, right? Because the context is that some were leaving the community of Christ even this early on. Because there were those heresies floating around that were, keep having, that were creating a, a, a division, certainly, but also creating a misunderstanding of who God is. Now, what you also have to realize is that we're talking about 90 AD under the reign of Domitian at this point. So the temple has already been destroyed. We see the author writing this from Turkey, from Ephesus, and that area writing to a church in Ephesus as well. But at this point, we're talking about second and third generation of Christians. I don't know what generation you are. Uh, we, we, from our faith tradition, from the Adventist faith tradition, tradition, we love to say things like, oh, I'm a fifth generation Adventist. I can, you know, check your provenance all the way back to whatever, the Mayflower or whatever, which is before Adventism, just to be clear. But um, yeah, you know, what was happening in this late first century is that the shininess of this new faith was wearing off a little bit. And this thing that was shiny to our grandparents and great-grandparents or certainly to their grandparents and parents, becomes nothing more than a hand-me-down faith to this new generation. So I got to ask you this question. Are you living a hand-me-down faith? Does your faith come from your parents? Does it come from your grandparents? Does it come from your legacy or tradition? Or does it come from your beliefs that you've studied and worked hard to understand? Because at this point, when John's writing, a lot of their faith was a hand-me-down faith. Their parents have believed, and they grew up in the church. Even as early as it was, they grew up in the church. And there's a bunch of stuff going on. There are three particular heresies that were coming from three particular groups that were bouncing around. And they were the Ebionites, the Gnostics, and the Docetists, or Docetism, this idea, right? The Ebionites, couldn't, Ebionites could not accept the divinity of Jesus. They just were like, nah, that's not a thing. Jesus wasn't God. There's no way. And then there was Gnostics, and which in a nutshell separated life into two parts, right? The flesh, which was evil, and the spirit, which was good. That means the incarnation then, right, wouldn't be good. It would be seen as bad because God could not come in the flesh. And then there's Docetism, which would have looked at the idea that sometimes it's called seemism, right, which means... He, he just seemed to be a man, but he was fully God, but not a man at all. Ebionites, safe man, no God. Um, the, the Gnostics were kind of off on their different thing. And by the way, the Gnostics were full of this like secret knowledge. And if they tell you this knowledge, they let you into the club. And that was weird. But so all that was going on, kind of, <clears throat> kind of swirling around at the time in these churches and um, the author has to deal with it. Now, we need to spend just a moment on authorship because this is a bit contested, right? Here are some of the suggestions that they say it might be. John the Apostle, John the Elder, a disciple of the Apostles, a literary tool of another author, or perhaps it was just a school of thought who wrote this, right? So let's break this down. Um, John the Apostle, we know who that is, John the Revelator right? Come, come back from exile, writing at the end of the first century before he dies, which is, yeah, he dies, I believe, at the beginning of the second century. So there's that one. Second one, John the Elder, which is somebody who might have known the disciple, and they called him John the Elder, delineating a different person, although there's arguments about that as well. Um, 
So maybe it's a disciple of the apostle. So somebody who sat at the foot of the apostle and writes in his name to kind of gain that position, right? Or a literary tool. Now, what does this mean? Um, somebody's using it as a, as, you know, kind of a, a pen name so people take it seriously. But I, the hard part with this is that people in the first century actually believed it was John. So to think that it was just a literary tool of another author is a little bit um, difficult. Or when we say a school of thought, what do we mean by that? If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, you remember that there's two schools of thought. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, I believe, Shammai. And then Hallel school of thought is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And be pure, right? Remember the priests and the Levites belong to Hallel. Unless I'm mixing that up, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And um, the the Samaritan would have been from the school of Shammai. And the expert on the law that Jesus was speaking to, by the way, in the story, was Shammai. He answered the, the question correctly. So that would be a school of thought, right? The school of thought that's kind of pro- popular at the time. Um, so who, <laughs> right? Um, which, which one was it? Do we know? Well, uh, perhaps the greater question is how God can use things. Right? Can God use the words of these books to let us know who he is, even if we don't know the authorship completely? And can he use other things to speak? We know that God can reveal himself through a myriad of different things, right? A ton of different things. So, I mean, are the words more important depending on who wrote them? Probably a little bit. But God can still use, God, God has been able to use even deeply erroneous and even sinful and, and you know, tough authors for things. But it's, again, it goes back to that idea of revelation and inspiration that we spoke to um, in our deconstruction series. But, um, so which one is it? Um, I have a tendency to believe that it actually was John. Um, I think there's enough evidence to say that it was. But if it wasn't, I'm pretty okay because I know that God has used these words and it certainly sounds like a lot of what John would have said. So that's kind of where I am. And you may say, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Don't, don't do that. I mean, is it okay to ask these questions on authorship? Because we were kind of given this package, right, of church and said, here, here, this is what it was and this is all good and it all happened this way. We were even given that with our Adventist history. This is what happened. This is a vision that happened. And, and we're, we're kind of not okay to question those things. I would argue that actually church needs to be the place where you question those things, which again, all of our deconstruction uh, led to that, right? Um, But I think this helps us be fair with our faith and to create a thinking faith because our faith should not be afraid of questions. I know that God is not. I think there is evidence for John, but I'm kind of good either way. However, um, I, I do think we need to do the work to study the text, right? So it sort of begins here. This letter is written to urge the reader's not to be led astray by those who had seceded from the Christian community and to reassure them that they are in the truth, right? It seeks to achieve its purpose by strengthening the reader's commitment to what they already know. So he's going to remind them of what they already know. That is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they heard from the beginning, Right? But it's also a message really of reconciliation. He wants to bring people back. That those who left, you, like you can come back to church. It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't even, like you, you may have gone really sideways, but it's okay. Now I got to tell you, 
when I was uh, when I first moved into the kind of Redlands Loma Linda area, I was working for Loma Linda Adventist Academy. I was their chaplain there, and there was a large movement by a very very conservative group, and I would actually say on the edge of cultism within the church, a, a movement for young people. And a lot of our kids got caught up in it, and they would come and they would give me Bible studies and tell me I didn't understand the Scripture and tell me I didn't really understand what grace was, what sanctification was, and they quote parts of Scripture for me to understand. Just a horrible hermeneutic, a horrible way to, stu to study the Bible, something I was very much opposed to and actually may have helped start an organization that spoke directly um, to a different kind of hermeneutic and a different kind of understanding of Scripture. Um, and these young people, man, they were fervent for this newfound conservatism that they had found. And I know you might say, oh, well, conservatism's not bad. That's, I'm not talking about I'm talking about something very specific that led them to not believe in the grace of God, not believe in love, not believe in belonging, but really to believe in remnancy, perfection, and a really dangerous kind of theology, right? And um, some of these kids came in and yelled at me and told me I didn't know what I was talking about. Like I said, it was brutal. It was, there's nothing like being schooled in a Bible study by a 15-year-old telling me I didn't understand the text. That's fun. Um, and so at the end of these, because it kind of became a bit of a pattern for a few years, at the end of these, when I would finish with a Bible study and tell them why I disagreed, and they'd tell me why I was wrong, and I so appreciated that, I would say to them, listen, this theology that you believe in that you think is so new and is so liberating, it's actually going to crush you. Um, you're going to be crushed under the weight of your perfectionism, of your last generation theology, of your idea that... Um, that God has called you to be in the remnant and nobody else. I said, it's, this is going to crush you. It's going to kill you. It's going to kill your spirit. It's going to kill your joy. It's going to kill your relationships with your family and people who don't agree with you. Um, and, you know, they thought I was crazy. And I said, listen, I know this to be true. I've seen people go through this before, but it's okay. You got to go on that journey yourself. However, I want you to know that my door is always open. And when this does crush you in a year or two years or five years or 10 years or 20, I don't know, it might take a while. When this does crush you and you're wondering whether or not you should even believe in God anymore, because that's where this is going to lead, you never being good enough, you not living in a way that makes Jesus come, like all these things, you need to understand that door is always open for you. You are always welcome to come back. I wanted to be deeply pastoral in nature, right? Because in, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we see this compassion for his people who have left and he wants to have come back and wants to open the door for it. This is truly a work of love for those who have stayed and for those who have left through error. So it begins like this. 1st John 1.1 starts like this. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and whom we have seen. And the beginning is really connected to Jesus incarnate. However, it's an echo, as you can tell, of John 1.1, which is, you know, that first text that all Greek students translate. Not just the beginning of time, like John 1, but this one is a little more focused on Jesus. So we proclaim to you, and who is he? He may be speaking to the royal we, in some respects, he may be speaking to those who were first eyewitnesses to Jesus. 
and including himself in that, including those, those great, that great group of eyewitnesses that we call the disciples and then the apostles. But he said, listen, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. So Jesus, not just the beginning, but the one who was there from the beginning, who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard, right? It's, it's, this one's more focused on Jesus. And this phrase, from the beginning, has been used, by the way, 10 times in these three epistles, right? It is most frequently used in the context that we are to love one another from the beginning, which is beautiful. And we'll get to that in time. Um, this is the idea that the gospel begins in love and that the major context of the gospel is simply love. If you're thinking about what's elemental to your faith, you're going to have a hard time, specifically in these three books, getting away from the concept that love is not only elemental, but it has priority, that it began from the beginning is love. And it says, you know, who we, we've, we've heard and we've seen. We saw him with our own eyes, still in John 1, 1, 1 John 1, 1. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This is the acquiescing, this is acquiescing to the idea that we have eyewitnesses who literally walked and talked and lived and breathed and ate and laughed and prayed with Jesus, right? He, these are the people who is writing this text. This is the person who is writing this text. It's the word of life, right? We've heard it. We've seen it. We've touched it. And by the way, this is against this agnostic heresy, right? This secret, quote unquote, knowledge. It is like, this is there. We saw it. We lived it. We breathed it. We were there. This is important for us to understand. First John 1, 1. I love this text. Moving on to, the, to verse 2. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. This is the incarnate Christ, right? And this is connected to the fourth gospel, who was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Who is with God. He is life itself. Life begins in him. And so what is the origin of life, right? For the author, it's Christ. And this is true of Paul as well, just so you know. Life begins with Jesus, not a birth, but when we are born with Christ. This is why we use the term being born again, right? And now we testify, so this is the one we're testifying to, and now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. So he's life itself, and he's life eternal. Again, consistent with the fourth gospel. This idea of it being revealed means that the knowledge is not kept from us. It's not a secret like the Gnostics, but it's for everybody. We claim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. This revealing also doesn't come from us. It comes from God. The knowledge that we have comes from God, and it is not secret. This knowledge that we have comes from God, and it is given to all of us for everyone, right? And then they want to remind you again, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And again, there's a reiteration, right? But a deep desire for fellowship together, right? So those of you who have left, we miss you. We want you to come back. We want you to be in our fellowship again, right? We fellowship with those who believe most like us. Therefore, we should be looking for commonality to create unity, right? Fellowship begins with commonality, not with division. 
And, and this is true in, in your friends, your life with your family, your life with your friends. This is true in your political conversations, in your religious conversations, in life in general. Find commonality, seek commonality, not division. Right? There's going to be a lot of things you don't agree on. Find the things that you agree on first and build relationships from those things. Then when you find the things that you disagree with, your relationship can last through it if you're willing to show some grace for the, for the maybe not misunderstanding, but for the, the different understanding that we have. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and actually heard so that you may have fellowship with us. We want you to come back. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So the extent of the fellowship goes beyond us. We believe our fellowship is actually inhabited by God, right? Where two or three are gathered, we say that, right? And it's expressed in the Trinity, this triune God, the, the Godhead we sometimes call it, the community of God, which has been forever and will be forever, but yet it's in relationship with one another. Our words of worship, that God might be in this place is something that we actually believe in. These are not empty words that we sing, but you know, we want the Holy Spirit to fall down. We want there to be grace within this place. We want God's presence to show up and we actually believe that it's gonna happen. And, and we want people to have fellowship with us and in turn with God as well. Not because we bring God to the fellowship, but because God is willing to inhabit that fellowship where two or three are gathered, God is willing to be there, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> That's important for us to understand. So these first three verses, man, they're pretty awesome. We've seen it. We've heard it. We want you to understand this knowledge is revealed to you. It can be there. You can get it. And we want you to get it so that we can be in fellowship together. When we are in fellowship together, we also know we're in fellowship with God. That's a huge part of it as well. That's really important. And then we're writing these things for a purpose. We're writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. Right? Uh, the NIV says we write this to make our joy complete. Because our joy is not complete without you. Do you understand that? Our joy is not complete without you. It means that you need to be part of this or else our joy will never be there. In fact, it means that everyone who's out on the street needs to be in here with us. Not because we're right, but because that what's, that's what brings us joy. That's what brings us fellowship. That your joy, our joy, your joy may be complete. So maybe we should ask, how does complete joy work? Right? Well, it begins, it begins with God among us begins with Emmanuel, God with us. So it begins with Christ incarnate. Joy always begins with the acknowledgement that God is with us, right? And if you've been in those worship moments where you, where you don't question whether or not God is with you anymore, it's powerful, it's important, and it's real. Our joy always begins with this acknowledgement that God is with us. And that moves us to fellowship, right? This presence creates in us a fellowship that is beyond mere friendship. It grows us into the community of God, the community of Christ, the community of, of the Holy Spirit. That is, a, that should be, <laughs> maybe it isn't always, but it should be a blessing to the world because of the way that we choose to love and we choose to create communities of belonging, the way that we choose to, to invite people in, a culture of invitation. It's pretty important. And that ultimately brings us joy. And by the way, joy 
It's felt and it's shared. This is why social media works. When you get a meal that you can't wait to eat, but it's so beautiful, you need somebody else to see it, you're gonna take a picture, you're gonna post it. Maybe not as much as we used to, but it still happens. Because joy is shared. We share joy, we have to. And that comes from the community of God. And that's what John is writing in this first introduction. And by the way, the introduction is weird, right? Because he doesn't, he doesn't say salutations to anyone. He doesn't do the things that normally you do in that period of time. He just jumps right in and he says, I want you back. Those of you who've left, I want you back. This knowledge is not secret. This knowledge begins with Jesus. We want you to be a part of it. And by the way, we want it to be yours. We want this faith to be shiny and new, not hand-me-down, not tired, not broken, not breaking. So maybe it's fair for us to ask this question, what kind of faith are you living? Are you living that faith that is inviting, that is bringing people in? Are you living an anxious faith? Are you living a broken down faith? Are you living your parents' faith that's not even yours? And I say this to people whose parents might not even be around anymore. People whose parents might have passed. Is it your faith that you're living? Your shiny and new faith? I mean, scripture says that God's promises are new every single day. Is that how we're living? As if we're living in a new promise? Are you living in a joyful faith? And is your joy complete? I mean, how do you complete this joy? What can you do? Well, Scripture seems to indicate, I'm going to give you a list, but Scripture seems to indicate that our joy is complete when we're in fellowship together. And so there's a few things we have to do when we're in fellowship together. First of all, we have to engage, right? That means we got to be with people. we got to be around people. We have to invest. So we have to go more than just, hey, how you doing? Happy Sabbath. Good to see you. And leave. you got to ask some questions. you got to invest some time. you got to get some skin in the game. Engage. Make sure you're there. Invest. Make sure you're going a little bit deeper. Employ your gifts. You got to use your gifts. You got to live a life of purpose within the community. Super important. If you're just coming and consuming, you're missing out. Your joy will never be complete. It just won't be. I know that sounds like a pitch to get you involved in church. Sure. Okay. I'll take that. It is. But it's more than that too. It's an understanding that you will live seven years longer if you have purpose in your life. Legitimately. That's blue zone science right there. Right? You will live seven years longer if you go to church. You'll live seven years longer if you're engaged. You're welcome. I just gave you 14 extra years to your life to enjoy. Enjoy the fellowship of God. Enjoy the fellowship of people. Enjoy what God is trying to bring. There's a lot of theology that's about to happen in this text. And I urge you to read your series guides every single day because there's a lot of theology that we go through. But I want you to understand this. Your joy can be made complete when you are in community. And that community is inhabited by the presence of God. It becomes more than just a group of people that come to worship together every single week. We are not seeing a movie together. We are worshiping the God most high. And as we do that, I believe, and I hope you do too, that it changes the whole concept of community for you and you realize that we have a complete joy because of what God has given us together, not alone. So if you're here, you're part of who we are and what we do. You belong to this community. 
And I love the fact that this is how he starts a letter that actually will be rebuke, that actually will be correction, that actually will be theological understanding. But he starts with, I just want you here. I want you to be a part, engage, invest, employ, and enjoy. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for the invitation that this letter starts with because this invitation is different than the rebuke. It's saying, hey, we know that you're wrong and you left and things are bad maybe, or you misunderstand some things or you don't understand who God is, the theology matters, but we want you here because that's the only way our joy can be complete. And Lord, that joy comes from understanding that when we are with each other, your presence is with us as well. So thank you for that. Lord, inhabit our prayers, inhabit our fellowship, inhabit our communities and inhabit the worship that we're about to give to you. Pray this in your name the holy name of Jesus, amen.